Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Pasimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Counsel, things that therapists should never, ever say. Smart Counsel provides perspectives and resources for providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua. And we are here, just the two of us today, talking about some of our favorite clinical faux pas. Favorite no-go lines. No-go lines, things that therapists should never say. And I would venture to say some of these are also things that we should never let our clients say either. (laughs) Right, like reframe it a little bit for them. (laughs) Jumping in, Josh, how you been? I've been doing pretty good. Good. I think we wanted to talk about uh, things we've been learning this week. Yes, do Uh, tell. So I've been going over a 50 to... 80-hour neurological brain health coaching certification program, which I'm really enjoying. And then on the side, I'm also reading Paul Pastor's book, The Face of the Deep. I I got his other two books, but I haven't started them. So The Face of the Deep by Paul James Pastor. I saw him speak. He did a great job. Ah, I imagine so. So, Yeah, his book is distracting me from my neurology stuff, which I'm kind of pleased with. So He he can have that wonderful quality of (laughs) distracting you with something gloriously beautiful. He was a roommate for both of us, wasn't he, at some point? I think he was, indeed. And now... Now we now he's a writer and so now we know somebody famous. Yeah, so, that's nice. Which yeah. is great. So the face of the deep. I have a copy of the first book waiting mm-hmm. for me on my shelf somewhere at home. So I need to read. That I think too. the other two books are volume one and two of the Listening Day or the Listening. Oh, that that's actually the one I was thinking. Okay, I have yeah. that one at home. Mm-hmm. I have not yet read the. I don't know that I quoted it correctly, but yes. something. That's okay. Anyway. Paul James Pastor, one of the finest authors and modern day mystics you will ever encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tell me about this other training that you're doing. Yeah, it's a brain health certification, okay. well, brain health coaching certification. Right. So it basically goes over a lot of different uh, brain imbalances and how you can deal with that with nutrition, exercise, vitamins, amino acids, supplements, etc. And if you're a doctor, it goes into which medications also are complementary, etc. So you have to work within your scope. For me, it's kind of limited. It's really good information. It makes me want to hire a doctor and have him work in my clinic with us, which might actually be a possibility. So well, that that would be wraparound services. So right, and then I just need like a couple hundred thousand dollars for the brain imaging equipment. Oh yeah, pennies. <laughs> so we'll just figure that out someday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that training sounds immensely useful. Yeah, and, uh, it's making me really envious of of all the need assessments out there. I kind of want them all. So especially when you have a tough client, you can't figure out, and you know, especially in neurofeedback. For sure, we'll do a brain map. If the brain map doesn't give you your answers, or okay, I want more. <laughs> well, when you look at all the readily apparent external stuff mm-hmm. and that's not quite holding the answer it's nice to know that you can look inward yes uh, and not just on the spiritual introspective level but inward on the you know brain neocortex limbic system level amino acids level right well like, it's a whole lot easier to work with a client with per- borderline personality disorder when their nervous system has the right support and their central nervous system their brain has everything that it needs <clears throat> believe it or not it's like working with somebody on the perfect med Okay, they're they're very workable. Well, it's the same thing with brain balance. If their biochemistry is really off, then you're gonna be really hard to work with and have a lot of problems. So I'm excited for your training, and I'm excited to hear. Yeah, I, I don't know how much it's learning. gonna really add to our practice, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> Probably not, but but it's great information. 
and it makes me at least want to hire a doctor and have a doctor who works in my building or something like that. So that would, that would be an amazing team up. Right. Yeah. I kind of feel like that integrated services is something I want to work towards. Anyways, what are you learning? What am I learning? Well, for fun, I'm still reading my novel. It's called Who Fears Death by Nidio Quatrefoy, which mm-hmm. it's overdue at the library, but I have about 50 pages left. And so I'm, I'm going to finish it. I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to do you it. You wait till Amnesty Day? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it's good to balance out all the technical stuff that I'm learning to do mm-hmm. just a bit of fun fiction and... This is this is a great a great writing voice and I and I love it. Great. As far as what I'm learning, so I've started my thirty hour supervisor training. So excellent. What you do so that you can officially be on the Oregon Board's approved list clinical supervisors for graduate and postgraduate yes. supervision hours. So it's uh, a little ways away. I need to finish the training and get some supervision and do some mm-hmm. practice. But it's been a really fun training. It's put on by Dr. Karen Hickson, who is mm-hmm. a local therapist, activist, yep. and a uh, really wonderful person. Okay. Uh, she's worked really hard to create uh, a very brave space with, with us and the colleagues and you know, we spend four days together over about a month's time. And yeah, it's really fun to be in this sort of training. It's the first sort of training I've been in with all licensed, all licensed professionals. Okay. And well, I mean, I think I've been, I think I've been in other trainings with all licensed professionals, but it's very much high level counseling. All of us have been out of school. We've been practicing. We've been supervising a lot of us already. And so one would would hope that supervision classes would feel like the next level. It it does. It does. And it's a really fun level of peers to be around and Mm. it's very validating and affirming. And we just, the conversations we're able to develop have been really exciting and um, I'm really excited to go back for the next weekend. Something to look forward to. Indeed. Indeed. And then I will be officially able to offer supervision as one of my services. Look at it. We're all growing up. I love it. Uh, Me too. We have compiled some lists of... What not to say. What not to say. And I guess this is a little bit meant to be instructive and a little bit meant to be funny and a little bit... It's going to be be mostly silly. Yeah. A a little bit silly, (laughs) but kind of serious too, because these are some, some of these things are things that I would hope is obvious that... We would never say, yeah. and maybe somebody has said them before, and if so, you know, we forgive you. Uh, some of the some some of the others are a little bit more nuanced, but anyway, we'll right. have fun with it. So we both have separate lists, we and we're probably going to share. There's probably going to be some copy, or or hopefully the obvious ones are going to be okay. on both of our lists for sure. What's uh, what's <clears throat> one for you? So my first and foremost one is probably the most obvious. I would hope is, I know how you feel, Ooh. but that one is also likely the most commonly used problematic statement i think so i think i've heard it a few times (laughs) indeed or a variation from from my list is some variation of they tell you a story you say oh i understand i had a similar situation oh yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. i understand (laughs) how you feel i know what you're going through and what do you think is problematic about that to be blunt it's very subjective people's experiences and sensations and that even if you feel like the situation is completely identical, people don't experience in the same way. People have different types of distress and different sensations when they're distressed. There is no comparing one person's experience to the others. I don't believe there is. Yeah, I agree. It's there, not validating. There really is not any comparison. <laughs> Even if you have two people who go through what looks like a similar situation, say, yeah. you know, two people on the same day, they break up with their partner and lose their job. Right. Even though there's some similarities in, in situation, they're still different people from yeah. different contexts, from different histories, probably interpreting those 
events through different lenses yep. and maybe they're a little bit similar but they're never quite the same and they could potentially be vastly different as well right and i think that even if the client is going to or does respond in what feels like a therapeutic way to that statement or to any statement like that i would still say it's not an appropriate statement even if they do like i feel closer to you because we have this mutual bonding experience it could have been extremely different you're bonding over something that you don't really know if it was the same now i'm thinking there's to, to complicate the conversation there, there are, there are some times when we do have some shared experiences and that can right. be very connecting. I'm trying to think about what, when, when that works and when that is the case, what's, mm-hmm. uh, what, what, what do you think makes that work when that does work? Well, I think that we all relate on the level of suffering, mm-hmm. like we all suffer and that there is this natural human experience very hard and, and that we don't have to know what they're going through in order to work through it with them or empathize with them or hurt with them. Part of it is because there are situations we don't have to be through, like a drug overdose, suicide survivor, you know, losing spouses, losing siblings, etc. We Some therapists have gone through this, but you don't have to have gone through those things to know what distress feels like. And you don't have to tell your client that like, oh, I've experienced pain, so let me jump in and help you. That's not really a criteria, <laughs> but we have all experienced pain. I think what's more important than getting distracted on whether or not we're in sync with the experience is more just have some emotional congruence, reflect back the feelings and content with your language and mm-hmm. your emotions and your posture mm-hmm. and and be present in the room and don't be so distracted about whether or not you can help them feel like you have been in their shoes. For sure. You don't need to have been in their shoes, have the exact same situation if you can be fully present with them in yes. whatever the situation is. Yeah. There is that. I think too that if we're careful with what we're comparing, we can sort of navigate this a little, a little bit. We have, you know, you're sitting with the person who, in the same day, they broke up with their partner and lost their job. Even if you've gone through a comparable sort of situation, I think it would be a little safer to say, "Oh wow, you, you seem like you're pretty disoriented by that." You know, I, I, I've experienced being disoriented by by sudden changes as well. You know, not making any reference to what they were specifically because yeah. that's that pigeon. Well, I think you. what you might be trying to get at is that. It doesn't feel that way forever. I am still here. I've known people who've had that experience. I've known people who've had that sensation, or maybe I've had that experience or sensation, mm-hmm. and I'm still here and I'm functional. Um, yeah. So maybe what you're trying to really get is that it, it does end. It does end. Know? And I think I'm thinking about sort of the the, the meta narrative of it too. Like this is the, the situation is more than getting fired and, and being dumped, but there's an emotional undercurrent to that. Right. And that emotional undercurrent is more likely to be a universally held experience mm-hmm. or more likely to be a relatable experience because emotions are emotions, right. you know, regardless of what brings them up. And that's maybe where we can be more relatable. Right. What's okay. Yours? So something I think that for sure a therapist should never say, in session is I'm sorry. Ah, aha. <clears throat> now why not? So I'm sorry for me is coming. I've, I'm coming to understand this as an expression of sympathy, which is friendly but not ultimately helpful. Okay. So I'm thinking of a story where I was sitting with a client who had just experienced some pretty significant losses, including, you know, situational stuff and there was a death of a loved one and a whole bunch of things. And I didn't fully know what was prompting me to, to say this in the moment, but but in, in that moment I, I said to the person, I am so sad that this has happened for you. And the person who was crying, they they took a deep breath and they they said, Thank you so much for saying you're sad and not saying you're sorry. Right. Because you know what they reflected back to me was that, you know, people say that they're sorry. It just 
it just keeps them safe. It just keeps them separate. Right. Well, so it feels like I'm over here in this safe zone, yeah. reaching down to you with sympathy. Yeah. Where empathy is more from peer to peer. Where empathy is more like, you're hurt, so I'm down here hurting with you. I'm sad, not I'm sorry. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. Okay. That's what I took away. Okay. For sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what that's what I would want to see happen instead. You know, yeah. Instead of sympathizing, being like, oh, I'm sorry, which is essentially saying, I see that you're sad, but I'm keeping my distance. To you know, practice a little bit of in the moment disclosure yeah. and you know, disclose what you're feeling. It you doesn't know. feel as present with you. It doesn't feel like you're meeting them where they're at. It yeah. feels like you are realizing there's a disparity between you. I am sorry. For I'm sure. over here, safe. You're over there hurting. Right. Versus if I allow myself to be impacted by the person's yes. story and let them know that they are impacting me and that I'm impacted and that I'm with them. I like it. That can yep. be much more bridge building. I like it. Yes. So. All right. Let's see here. All right, what's your next one? Um, I would just like this one's kind of broad, but just any close ended question is not as helpful as you might think it is. So close ended questions are really great for like intake forms and then never again. Right. <laughs> Have you ever committed a crime? Right. <laughs> <laughs> or if so, please fill in this extra part. Right. <laughs> or, oh goodness, I'm trying to think of closed-ended questions, but I'm out of practice. <laughs> well, me. I mean, it's just, yeah, people people need um, mm-hmm. more discussion and less black and white and more time to express and talk. Yeah. There's more, yeah, questions and, like, you know, did you do this or do you think this or... When beginning therapists ask way too many closed-ended questions to the point where their clients may even report that they feel interrogated. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if the therapist is nervous. It's just like being barraged, you know, interrogated. We're trying to get more information, but we don't know how to get the client to talk. Well, part of it is our questions. A lot is the questions. <laughs> Rather than saying like, have you ever committed a crime? Try to rephrase that one. Right, which um, that's not actually a question we would ask in therapy anyway. Probably not, <laughs> so, but it's the one you used. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, what kind of experiences have you had around blank or, you know, just asking them more broad questions. And sometimes mm-hmm. we have to ask closed-ended questions. That sounds more like assessment than therapy. Mm-hmm. Or here, here, here's a good one. A closed-ended question that's just really heavy loaded would be something like, you know, have you ever experienced trauma? I mean, that that's problematic anyway because we understand trauma in a lot of different ways. And it's we haven't talked about definitions or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to if you turn it into a storytelling experience where you invite the person to tell them a story about when they felt scared or when they felt helpless right. or right. overwhelmed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, depending on your theoretical perspective, closed-ended questions could be too invasive, meaning even though they're not getting a lot of information, they're also getting information that you haven't really earned. So it's true. And right. Well, and I, I came up with that one thinking about how I took a lot of play therapy classes and I integrate a lot of play therapy principles into even just talk therapy. And I think a lot of theories actually do that, but that's where I came up with that question. So what's yours? My next one is the word fine. Hmm. And this is a little bit a a therapist thing and a little bit a client thing where I don't think it would be healthy for a therapist to tell a client, oh, that's fine. Oh, you're fine. Because, you know, you can't project a state onto a person. Right, right. I'm feeling anxious about this. And my therapist says I'm fine. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, oh, you're fine, hon. You're fine. No, no, no. Don't do do that. (laughs) But also, I, I strongly discourage my clients from saying fine as well especially when i'm asking how are you or what are you feeling or doing an individual check-in or a group check-in actually when i when i do group check-ins i have people tell tell me what what their emotion word is i'm I'm very clear say an emotion word my band list uh you 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 know the words you know fine okay all right average and okay don't count you can't say those because they're not feeling words 
and fi- fine in particular it's it sounds like an avoidant like it's, you know word it's very avoidant it's a filler filler word it's this cultural cliche we walked i'll walk up to strangers in the store we're like hey how's it going i'm fine i'm fine i'm like you don't know and probably not yeah so i don't want to answer you no 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 <laughs> that's what it means yes yeah. so it's essentially i think a useless descriptor fair enough Okay. What is your next one? Maybe it's all in your head <laughs> and anything like that, which you think people wouldn't say, but they find sneaky ways of saying that one. Therapists do. They do. Like how are some sneaky ways? That's a really good question. So it was a different friend of mine when I wrote it down. Um, so sneaky ways that we, we say that with our clients are that we will actually. Or, or I can imagine they're, they're telling you a story about something that happened and you, and you reflect back. Wow. I, I wonder, I wonder if it was really that bad or. Right. I wonder if it was really really that serious or yeah so some so imagining that something is uh, in fact perceived and not real um, which can be the case but you don't say it that way suggesting that <clears throat> mental illnesses are not real problems suggesting that their pain and suffering is potentially has no real source and what that does is it just makes them feel disempowered and it makes them feel kind of cut off from hope and people do people do sometimes say things like this and the reason why i know they do is because i get a lot of clients who come from other therapists and you know maybe the therapist didn't say it very direct or maybe it was just impressed on them but they leave because of those statements and they go to somebody else and so we hear about them my therapist said this or you know suggested this i think Um, so so or, that's that's where I know it gets sad is, is that I, I get clients because of it. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, and I believe it. And I, I think I've gotten some clients too are thinking, you know, clients who clients who experience, you know, a lot of body pain or right. like the myalgia family. Oh, geez. Yeah. Where, yes. you know, there's a lot of mystery surrounding that and uh, a tendency in the medical community can be to say, oh, since we can't identify the cause of that, it must not really exist. So, which is Which is so weird to say, yeah. like your pain isn't real wait what do you mean how is how is pain not real pain, pain is pain real. is pain yeah <laughs> i mean like if i'm experiencing pain isn't that proof of pain it's <laughs> that should be sufficient you yeah know, i mean you, what you're saying is there's not an open wound but it doesn't mean there's not pain right you know there's um, lots of kinds of pain and you shouldn't need to prove that you're in pain right I mean, you should be when if you're gonna say you know, what, what to do about chronic pain is a different story but for you don't sure. have to prove you're in pain no definitely doesn't mean that we have to load you full of opiates because that's not going to help either. You know, <laughs> sure. discrediting or invalidating a client's experience of pain. Yeah, not helpful. And you can do that with emotional pain too. You, you know, you know, I've I've read all kinds of stories, even just in some of the books where, you know, a patient is grieving for too long, you know, quote unquote. Right. <laughs> and well, and the therapist gets impatient. Yeah. You know, and a, they'll say things that are invalidating. Yeah. So. That's not helpful. No. Or the other thing I'm thinking about it would be maybe how we talk about symptoms. Say, say mm-hmm. a person's responding to internal stimuli mm-hmm. or is a voice here, a vision's here. And we. Oh, you're talking about like with, with a schizoaffective or schizophrenia? Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Potentially one could kind of carelessly talk about the symptoms, like not, a, not in an overtly derogatory way but just talk about yeah. like you know oh your symptoms and let's well, and, and that, that can almost be its own podcast with a specialist here because those voices in your head we we talk about well they're just in your head they're not real well but are you acting like they're not ego states from your nervous system because they are originating from your head i mean they might feel relatively random but but even with schizophrenia is it totally random no of course not you know <laughs> it still has some bearing on your life for sure. So, 
and it's you can still do emdr with someone who has schizophrenia right <laughs> but i feel like it would be good to be careful and mindful about how we talk with the voice here about oh yeah the voices that they hear yeah. and when you, know, you, you do a disclaimer you should only do that kind of work if you are so trained for sure so. <laughs> for sure it's, and get lots of supervision regardless that supervision stuff it's good we yeah should, we, should, we should all do it <laughs> all right so next on my list is the word normal i don't like the word normal yeah tell, tell me more about that so because that one's that's one like i'm like okay that I want, I want your explanation. Right. Convince so this me. This one's a little, bit, a little bit nuanced. So one time I took an abnormal psychology class, which I have since come to sort of loathe the idea and the concept of an abnormal psychology mm-hmm. class because it's a very spectrum concept. Mm. And so where on the spectrum does normal exist? Right. And or it, more likely, like, where's it the magical up, line? More likely, it ends up being normals on one end of the room and abnormals on the other. Okay. And if you can lay it out as a spectrum of like, oh, here's two ends, and there's room for every shade in between. I mean, that that's one thing. But how the word gets used and thrown around, for sure, in pop culture and a lot of times in so you think it makes also. things feel black and white that I are feel black like, and white. Yeah. It okay, I get that. Yeah. I can buy that. Yeah. So you, the way the way that the word normal is often used tends to have a really othering effect. Yeah. Or, you know, normal is held up as the gold standard, whatever it is. And that's the problem is, you know. Well, I think anything that's black and white that isn't has an othering effect because it makes the gap between the two too big. Like, well, how do I make that jump from abnormal to normal or from this white, black to this, you know, white, you know, that, that big jump. Yeah, I get that. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. And I think if normal and abnormal could be just terms on terms on their own, it may not be so bad, except that the implication often is, you know, if you're normal, you're good. If you're abnormal, you're bad. Right. Or to be normal is to be right. To be abnormal is to be wrong. To, to be normal is to be on the inside included acceptable and right. to be abnormal is not. And at that point, that, that's why I reject the term because because it's loaded with those sorts of implications. Okay, I get so, it. So yep. now it, there's some ways to, to play with it. Like sure. you, you can, like, like you mentioned earlier, Josh, you could talk about someone's life situation, you know, kind of identifying what, you know, what their personal baseline is. And you could right, talk I about remember, yeah. what's normal to you. What's well, I like to say, you know, you. given your experiences, your, your feelings are really normal. Or maybe the attempt to... Uh, add some containment, but I get, I get, I get the difference. I, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And even with, you know, somebody's going through bereavement, I mean, we might mm-hmm. be able to say, oh yeah, there's some feelings that are normal for this sort of situation, Yeah, which is true. There are feelings that we would typically expect in that sort of situation. But I think I'd rather say there's feelings we typically expect because sure. that doesn't have the connotation that some feelings are good in this situation. Some feelings are bad because right. we can't really police or regulate what kind of, right. It's just an unhelpful, inaccurate system yeah. uh, in, in terms that we're using. It's, sure. it's unhelpful. Yep. I get that. That makes yep. sense. So, mm-hmm. okay. I don't like normal. All right. No bad. Normal is bad. <laughs> I'm a fan of abnormal anyways. Let's see, next one. What did you do to cause that? Any implications suggesting that it might be their fault? And then I think sometimes you'd think that that'd be hard to do, but again, we get clients from people who do this. Mm-hmm. So they come to us, they leave their clinics, they come to us. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking in particular people who have experienced trauma Mm-hmm. and who are often either overtly or covertly blamed for their trauma. Yes. Like, why were you there? What were you doing? It can be subtle. It can be un- un- unintentional. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I doubt the therapist intends to do it half the time, you know. I would hope not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the other And the other occasion where this is a really unfortunate thing to say is in the case of any sort of sexual assault, where if, if ever the instinctive urge is to ask the victim, well, what did you do to provoke this? Or, you know, how could you have prevented this? That's just 
loaded in all sorts of Well, you of could even, ways. even just a subtle question I can imagine could be deeply harmful of saying like, did you try to fight them off? Yeah. Like, uh, it, there's something implied there. There is? The, you know, there's something implied there. Like maybe you should have. Right. Or maybe, or, you know, either you should have or either you could have, which maybe they should have or could have, right? right of which course. maybe they could not have. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, sexual assault should never be considered the victim's fault. Right. Another term. Okay. Pa- paraterms. I don't like the words weird or crazy anymore, especially in a clinical situation mm-hmm. because they are really big, ambiguous, vague words that almost don't mean anything anymore. They're sort of the counterparts to normal where normal is highly contextualized and really subjective. Thus, so are weird and crazy and crazy in particular. It's, it's, it's this fun sounding word. It's, it's, it has a fun feel in the mouth, but the way it's used in pop culture, the way it's used on the streets, the way it's used in the clinic, it almost doesn't have any meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. And if it does, I almost feel like it has a derogatory feel to it now. Yeah. Like when we say, oh, you're crazy. Essentially, what are we saying? Like, I don't like what you're doing. I think you're dumb. Yeah. I don't think you belong. And yeah. that's not helpful and can more often be hurtful. So I, I've taken to, from for myself, not ever using that for sure about people once in a while about like a, a pasta dish or something, but like <laughs> it's crazy pasta <laughs> uh, or like a killer soundtrack by John Williams or something. Okay. But I've taken to discouraging clients from using that yeah. about themselves or about others in individual and in group settings. Because again, I mean, it's, it's this pop culturized word that is big and broad and ambiguous and hard to define and almost, and you, you probably, I'm guessing you, reframe that when your clients use that term yeah yeah i i would encourage them to you know, if they're saying they're they're feeling crazy yeah you know i would encourage them to say try to say what actually they're feeling yeah oh you're feeling anxious you're feeling disoriented you're feeling angry okay. you're feeling all these things at once um so mine we already kind of covered this one a little bit here and there but anything that that takes away hope from the client and we we had a couple of situations already where that popped up we said well that that seems to really creates a gap between you and health or like uh, black and white thinking or normal versus abnormal or maybe it's all in your head because that makes it sound uh, like you have no control over it, that there's no real intervention. Yeah. So anything, anything that encourages the belief that there's no hope. And I think that that can be a little bit unconscious. It can be unintentional. Therapists don't obviously suggest that on purpose, but they do suggest it sometimes. They, they do. And if not with their words, perhaps with their actions or with their, their parables right. or, right. you know, they can have that crestfallen look of like, and I mean, you can't see this, no, when you're listening, but I'm like, I'm making like the, those shoot phase. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, visibly, pa- visibly panicking in the client room yeah. is not really helpful. Well, and it comes down to therapists. One of our main jobs is, especially working with trauma, offering containment. We have to be able to handle what they bring into the room. We can't be shocked by it. You know, I mean, sometimes there's a, there's therapeutic times we want to respond to their story the way that that should that should be responded modeling that mm-hmm. other times we we want to maintain a level of control in the room um, contain it and when we fail to do that clients lose hope and we have to maintain hope with our clients there's quite a few things that if we lose hope the whole thing kind of stops we have to have curiosity we have to have hope we have to have imagination i'm mostly convinced that without hope Without imagination, without curiosity, people don't get better. And yeah. could be wrong. And I, I, we could almost create a spectrum of saying, you know, have this much PTSD. You know, there's proportionate loss in hope and curiosity and 
imagination. I, um, it's just a theory. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's without hope, without vision, the people perish. And, yeah. and you know, if you don't have something to work for, to live for, or to look forward to, then why bother? Why yeah. continue going? So we, we have to try to make sure that we're constantly offering our clients hope. Yeah. Sometimes we're offering them hope at the same time that we're educating them on how much work they have to do. You know, so it can be there is it's kind of tedious, you know. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes t- educating them about the work to do can be hope-inducing itself because you're yeah. saying there's a solution. There are steps you can take. You're not just in this deep hole, but you can actually climb out, and here's yeah. how. And there's there's a there's a path. Yeah. Yep. So Absolutely. at the same time, we should always instill hope. Uh, I feel like we should also be aware of false hope or cheap hope or right. the every little thing, it's going to be all right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I the, think they'll see through that uh, and that will be hopeless. Yeah, <laughs> not so good. Yeah, I, and I think I think that if you work with trauma and you're having a hard time instilling hope in your clients, there are some really great trauma workshops that will let you understand the trauma counseling process. And you can't necessarily tell that process to your clients but to actually have a process to do a lot of psychoeducation throughout it, they'll sense when you know the path. They'll sense that you know the direction that you're going and how to get there. Or they won't, and they'll run out of hope. Sure. All right. I like what uh, Jim Velez used to teach us when, where he would say, not quite everything's going to be okay, but you won't yes. be here forever. Or yeah, you, well, I think what he actually said was, uh, you won't feel this way forever. You won't feel this way forever. Which I think I still use to this day on clients maybe once a month or more. I won't feel this way forever. Yeah, that's that's a really good one. Yeah, because because it's when you're in the midst of a grief crisis, there is nothing else you can say to somebody except you won't feel this way forever. Because all you can do is offer them empathy, emotional congruence, and the hope that someday it'll be different. Uh, Because you can't actually make them feel better right now. I mean, other than sitting with them and being sad with them which is not going to fix it. That's not going to fix it. And, and, but that's true though, that very few things are permanent. You, you know, even pain and pain is not permanent. And, yep. you know, you think about a lot of the, the cognitive theories, DBT, and we watch how, yeah, you have your emotional highs, you'll have your emotional lows, you have more emotional highs, more emotional lows, you know, people come and go, situations change, you know, the world fluctuates around you. So, so nothing, nothing is set, right. which can be anxiety provoking, sometimes but could also be hope inducing also because you know whatever it is now it will change and it could get better so what do you got i have so a collection of phrases any variation of just just deal with it just deal with your problem or yeah i think i've got that one on my list that just uh just do it i had the nike swoosh (laughs) yeah well and then I guess there, I, I, I see a couple a couple variations of this. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there could be the clinician saying it to the therapist, which could be exceedingly damaging. You know, just do it. You know, just stop. Just, just quit your addiction. Just get over your pain. Just move through your anxiety and your bereavement. As if it could be that simple, and as right. if it will work on your timetable. Yeah. It won't. You're doing with teenagers. Just do your homework. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or working with toddlers. Just obey me. Uh, right. It doesn't work. The other, the other one though is what clients often say. Yeah. And and I've seen this in addictions clients in particular, but I think with a lot of them too, where a challenge comes up or some interpersonal conflict comes up and, you know, at some point the client seems to come to a point of resolution, which I think actually ends up being more resignation. And I would ask, so how are you getting through this? And they're just like, well, I'm just dealing with it. 
Yeah. You're like, oh, well, what does that mean? And they can't usually say because I don't think they're actually dealing with it. Right. I think this, this idea of a client saying, oh, I'm just going to deal with it or, oh, I'll just get over it is sort of a filler phrase to distract them from actually doing any work, sort of a distracting cliche. I see. Okay. Um, we released this other other episode on acceptance uh, a while back and talking about what is acceptance, what is acceptance not, and talking about how acceptance is, you know, like forgiveness and that it's this really personal process. It's this in-depth process. Sometimes it's a very long process where a person goes on a journey to come to an internal realization about, you know, whatever the painful thing is. And you know, to just slap a phrase on it, like, oh, I'm just dealing with it, or I'm just getting over it, or I'm just accepting things how they are without actually doing like the inner work is kind of cheap and kind of unhelpful. Right. Compared to actually dealing with something, which is the the long, difficult, rigorous work of, you know, therapy and stuff. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, I I throw up, you know, flags when clients tell me that they're, they're just, in quotes, just dealing with their problem or they just got over it or right. anything like that. Like magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> magic. Gotcha. Let's see here. So I've got one. I'm kind of skipping one or two because we already covered them, but other people have it worse or anything that, that kind of illustrates, well, there are worse things in the world to happen to somebody, you know? <laughs> yeah. So tell me about this one because yes. that's technically true. It is true. But, and the reason why is because it's an invalidating statement and it's an invalidating statement because experience is subjective. Uh So uh, in some therapies, we use terms like subjective units of distress. And we're talking about a lichen scale of a one to 10, like in a hospital. How distressed are you on a scale of one to 10? One being no pain and 10 being the worst pain you've ever felt. Well, that's a subjective scale. And that sometimes, you know, one person having the flu is not the same as the other person having the flu. (laughs) You know? Very true. Uh, I'm a chronic migraine sufferer and I have to do a lot of things to be really conscientious to manage my migraines. It's, and I go, there's a lot of things I have to do. It's very tedious. When I get a migraine, I can still go to work and I can still function. There are people who, you know, I did a three-day assessment and found out I was 10 times over the disabled limit before I got my life together, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, for my migraine specifically. For sure. But I still work. And so I am not in a lot of distress with my migraines and they still are very painful. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> yes, and and I was ruined yeah. as someone who does not typically experience migraines. I actually may not have ever experienced a migraine. Yeah. My guess is, if I were to experience one, I would be floored and have to call. In Some sick people and, are floored and they can't yeah. do anything. Yeah. Um, and and arguably, one could say, well, when you check off all the questionnaires and you do all the assessments, you probably have a lower score than me. But that distress is subjective, right? Sometimes the sensation of depression can be interpreted differently through someone's cognitions. Even depression is subjective. Did a, you know, there's a study where they did brain maps on people who were too anxious to leave their house. And they were trying to compare that to other relative norms. At one point, they incidentally discovered that people who ran multi-million dollar companies, some of them had the same brain map as people who couldn't leave their house. Interesting. Uh, the researchers, after much deliberation, concluded that it's possible that they have the same sensation in their body, but they interpret that sensation wildly different. Ah, uh, yes. And that's an interesting thought, that one of them has used that energy in their body to push them into a very successful position, and the other one has related to that sensation in a way that has 
pushed them away from society and into isolation. For sure. So falling back on the the cognitive therapies maxim, there mm-hmm. are no distressing events, only distressing interpretations. Ah, uh, you, you have to give me that information later. I want to know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all that to say. The uh, phrase we started with is other people have it worse or anything that suggests that. Right. That's, it's yeah, subjective. That's, that's so subjective. So hard to quantify. Um, yeah. I mean, you could... And if somebody is greatly distressed by something that's small, the least helpful thing you can do is to point that out. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So. Whereas like one of the most helpful things can do is just to, you know, when somebody says they are distressed to believe them and say, yeah. like, okay, you are distressed. I the evidence distressed. is, is in front of you. Yeah. They look distressed. Yeah. yeah. Their, their, their appearance of being distressed and their confession of being distressed is sufficient evidence. And Correct. We should believe them, align with them. Well, and, and we covered all my other ones. So that's the last one of okay. mine. So I think my last one, and this is uh, this is a little bit cheap because this is <laughs> cheap poten- one to end on. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's potentially a black hole into this huge, huge conversation. Uh-oh. But and I don't know if it's specifically a phrase that people say as much as an attitude that they can go in with. But it's this idea of uh, the clinician beginning to work with a client who is very different from them in some way. Maybe they're a different skin color, mm-hmm. different gender, different sexual orientation, different gender expression, different ethnicity, mm-hmm. different socioeconomic status, even you know different you know stage in life. And it's unhelpful when the clinician goes into that encounter expecting the client to teach them about themselves. Now, not to say the clinician never never learns from the client. Not to, not to say that that can't cannot be a learning encounter. But it's unhelpful. Our clients do teach us. But our clients do but, teach us. Yeah. But. <laughs> Anything the client teaches, anything the anything my client teaches me in the client in the therapy room should be secondary, tertiary to study I have already done outside of the therapy right. room. Right. You know, I should have. You know, if me being you know a, a white male wants to start working with people of color, you know, you know before I presume to ask a person of color to tell me about their experience, I should have already you know gone to some trainings, yeah. know, read some books. Yeah watch the documentary maybe but i can see like if you're in the middle of nowhere in like alaska you right. know that you're just gonna have to make do and that's gonna have to be a part of your informed consent for sure and that's the big key piece there is is that like if you are an isolated therapist yeah you got to do it but but yeah but at least inform them at least inform them <laughs> and you know even while you're up in alaska and you know you have to be learning on the fly i mean alaska still has the internet Right. So, you know, so you should still be reading and learning on your own. Right. I agree. Yeah. I think the, the unhelpful thing here I'm talking about is to place the The burden burden of educating the clinician solely on the client in that situation. And that's not fair. It's not why the client is there. It's not the responsibility. And, you know, they're not going to give you a full picture of their demographic anyway. They're going to give you just their experience. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so we should come in with as much education as we can, and they'll help fill in the gaps. But but it's not their responsibility. All, all right. right. Well, those are all my all my blacklisted statements. Oh, you love it. <laughs> all right. So, well, that was fun. So if we hear about any of you students using any of these words, then we will say nasty things to you in person. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, no, it will be nice. So please comment on the podcast below. And if you have any questions or thoughts or want to add. Comments that would be good for this one would be, what are your blacklisted comments uh, yes. for when you are doing therapy? Love it. We would love to collect that. Okay. In the meantime, this has been Smart Counsel. Thank you for listening. Please follow and comment. We will be back with more Smart Counsel. Please be sure to rate and review Smart Counsel on iTunes and SoundCloud.
We love your feedback, so let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at at Smart Council 601, and you can email your questions to smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Josh can be found on the web by searching Neurofeedback Care. Reese can be found at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Council has been produced by Reese Pasimio and Joshua Moore.